How's everybody? Good to, s- good to see everybody. Happy Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Some people mistakenly think that <clears throat> the word Easter comes from Ishtar, but it doesn't. It's not, pay- it's not a pagan holiday, but that is not my message today either. So <clears throat> let's stand up. All right, let's, let's pray. Lift your hands up and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. Just ask that you will help and bless us today and ask that you'll anoint me and you'll open our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you can be seated. All right, let me, let me read, let me read from John chapter 11. <clears throat> John chapter 11. Verse, sorry, I want to start in verse 17. Um, So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she told him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, and when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out and followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. <clears throat> then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha and the sister of him who was dead said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot. He who had died came out bound hand and foot with great clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go.
helps when you, no, that's on. So we talk about resurrection on Easter Sunday, right? And I purposely stayed away from any of the resurrection accounts of Jesus because there's a few things in this story I want to highlight as I go through the message. But I want to point out the obvious. Whenever we come together at Easter especially and we celebrate what it means to us, we put resurrection in the distant future, um, I'm sorry, in the distant past or the distant future. So we either look backwards to an event that we believe occurred 2,000 years ago and say, he is risen, right? Or we look forward to an event that's going to happen a long time for us, hopefully all of us, <laughs> after we die or whatever, or at the second coming or whatever we've been taught to believe. So... For us, when we celebrate, it exists, we talk about resurrection that's far away from us in the past or far away from us in the future, and we fixate, if you will, allow me to say it that way, on the resurrection of the body. Right? So, here's my question, what about the in-between? What about the in-between of the event? Because really, then we have to ask ourselves the question, does the resurrection have any real tangible power or meaning for us today? There's Lazarus in his grave clothes. You notice in the story, they did the same thing. Lord, if you had been here past, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And they say, well, we know he'll rise again at the last day in the future. Nothing in the present moment, at least in their mindset. And so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So again, if Jesus is eternal and if he is resurrection and life, then we're talking about something that's not solely about this, dare I say it, meat bag. that we carry around with us for however many years we're blessed to be on this planet. I think, you know, it's very clear that Paul mentions in his writings that the resurrection has something to say to us today. So let's look at a few of these. First one says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes down a few verses later and says, But if Christ is in you, If Christ is where? (laughs) In you. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, (laughs) He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. He's not talking about a past event, saying you have to believe it in order to be saved. He's not talking about a future blessed hope. He's saying there's a reality of Christ and his resurrection life and power that is in you right now that can give you life and quicken you. Yes? And here's where I want to focus today. Ephesians 5.12. Look at this. It says, uh, and I, I just like the King James the way it says it, so you have to forgive me. Um, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. So, 
Paul connects awakening to resurrection. He's not telling him it's something to wait to wait for. He's saying it's something that needs to happen right now. He says, awake thou that sleepest and rise from the dead. So awakening is a form of resurrection from the dead, right? And then Christ, where is Christ? In you, Christ in you will give you light. So what does it mean then to be awake? And if we're going to answer that question, then we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be asleep? I mean, surely he's not just talking about, you know, set your alarm clock, make sure you're on time for church. We're, we're falling forward. Is it falling? Is it, it's falling backwards. Springing forward. Which one is the one where everybody shows up late? Spring forward. So it's not like, you know, Paul's posting the reminder on Facebook saying, hey, make sure you wake up. What does it mean to sleep? What happens when you sleep? Basically, when you sleep, you, you lose consciousness, right? You lose consciousness, you lose conscious awareness, conscious intention, and your mind just kind of takes over. And when you're dreaming because you're asleep, your mind just kind of makes up a world of its own, doesn't it? (laughs) And so when you sleep, you lose consciousness, you enter a dream world, and that dream world is a world that is solely and completely made up of imagination, memory, and emotion. Now the interesting thing is, if you... Look at any indigenous culture anywhere in the world and you look at their spiritual traditions. Even if they've never met, they all say the same thing. They all speak to us about the fact that even our waking life is living in a dream. And when they talk about that, there's a realization that we have our personal dream (laughs) and then there's the dream of the planet. And so what does that mean? It's a way of saying that our thoughts, our thoughts, our imaginations, and our emotions distort our perceptions of reality. And there is no way around that. The world You create the world that you experience partly by the input of what's happening around you and then mostly out of the combination of the meaning and sense and emotional responses, and thinking, and stories that you tell yourself about what's going on around you. And that is your personal dream. Make sense? The other problem is, is that we're not the only dreamers. (laughs) We're not the only ones that aren't conscious. We're not the only ones that aren't awake. Uh, basically, as a general rule, the whole planet is kind of sleeping, and so there's this dream of the planet. Or, this is really an important point, when you and I exist in someone else's life, we are a part of their dream. And we're born into a dream, a collective dream, that's made up of our parents, made up of our background, made up of our culture, made up of our nationality, made up of our schools. Everybody has a dream for you. (laughs) Right? And we're all unconscious about it. And so we go through this process of domestication. 
What is domestication? Domestication is when your youngest son comes in the room for the Easter fashion show and has a lizard for a tie clip. A living, breathing one. And he's sneaking over to the communion table and trying to get the crackers and sits down when everybody else is standing up. And I realize, Lord, you put him on the planet to keep me humble. (laughs) But the truth is, all of that is his self-expression, especially the lizard. So domestication would then be, we can't have that. You're, for crying out loud, you're the pastor's kid. You, you, you gotta make a good showing, at least for the Easter. I mean, everybody comes for Easter. Everybody's dressed their best and nobody wants to sit there and watch you pick your nose. <laughs> Get rid of the lizard. Stop that. Why? Because you have to conform to what we think you're supposed to be. Because if I'm the pastor, I'm trying to conform to what they think I'm supposed to be. And on and on and on it goes. Do you see it? And so this happens to all of us. We come into the world with this authentic self. We come into this world so that we can give expression to something that is uniquely ours. Uh, so it's almost like God prepackaged you with a dream, with a voice, with, with music inside you that's absolutely unique. I mean, think about it. If your DNA is so unique that no one else, um, except maybe if you're identical twins, and I don't know about that has the same DNA, right? Or no one else has the same fingerprint. Pretty sure identical twins don't have the same fingerprint. Regardless, everybody has a unique human voice and expression and dream, unique desires, unique abilities, unique talents, something that absolutely is a gift to the world, but you come into an environment where you become domesticated because everybody else wants you to fit in their box and fit in their dream and do what you're supposed to do. And so as children, then we begin to compromise. We begin to learn that we have to compromise or shave off parts of ourselves in order to fit in and create a social self. Now, a social self is important if you're going to be able to function. So I'm not saying that we're not working with our kids. We're just going to let them express themselves however they want to. And so I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'll give you an example. I had a roommate in college who was raised by psychologists, and they let his self-expression go so far that if he wanted it, that at one point, I don't know how old he was, he, I don't mean to gross you out, but he opened the oven and urinated inside the oven, and that was, and no correction, because that was part of his self-expression, alright? So, so there is a place for a molding of a social self, but here's the problem. When you don't realize that your persona is just that, that it is a social self that you use as a construct to move in and out of social relationships, that's okay. But when you lose yourself because of your social self, 
yourself. And when your image or false image that you've constructed and put up for everybody else is so important to you that you forget who you are and you lose yourself and you lose connection with your soul and you lose your authentic voice because you're so busy trying to parrot everything that you think everybody's supposed to tell you how you were supposed to be and you get confused and that's when we fall asleep. We fall asleep because of that domestication process. It programs responses in us to the world around us. Let me give you another example. Someone tells their child, finish your plate, there is people starving. Think about how crazy this is. We are overweight. By the time your parent, grandparent, your metabolism has slowed down for most of us. Right? You can't eat like a teenager anymore and just eat McDonald's and, and chicken nuggets and whatever and it, it disappears. Right? <laughs> you say, you know, that food's going to go to waste. Well, it's going to go to waste one way or the other with me. <laughs> Just depends which waste. <laughs> the waste basket or <sighs> So here we are trying to eat less, trying to diet, trying to manage our portions. We can even go places and pay all kinds of money, right? And they'll tell us exactly the portions that we can eat. You know, order half a portion when you go to the restaurant, right, right, right. But the whole stinking time we were domesticated. Eat your food, finish your plate, because there's people starving in Africa. So somehow it sends the message that if you eat, it solves the world hunger problem. So we tell our kids, we make them feel guilty if they don't finish their food. So then what happens? They grow up later and they're finishing their food and now they got type 2 diabetes, now they got high blood pressure, now they got body image issues and whatever... So when you're young, you're being domesticated, finish your plate. And then when you're older, no, don't finish your plate. And it's so funny, you know, counseling, counseling people, younger people, and, and, and being around. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to go there. I can't go there. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, Lord. <clears throat> but do you get it? So, so it, it, no, I don't like that food. No, you have to like that food. Right? You have to eat. So that's part of the domestication process. So then that becomes a law that becomes internalized that with somebody else's. You just expressed yourself through your appetite until somebody told you, no, that's wrong. You gotta eat because there's people starving. They made you feel guilty and they made you somehow think you were the answer to world hunger. So now you internalize that as a belief. You see it? And we do that thousands of times. Until we shave off parts of ourselves so that we can fit in and think we can accept love in our surroundings. And we become like Jacob. You know, Jacob had a real problem. If I can just uh, allude to another Bible story real quick. Jacob had a problem because daddy loved Esau. Because Esau was more manly, manly man. He was hairy. and I mean, think about what the Bible does here. I mean, here's the, the twins. And Esau's hairy, right? And Esau's a hunter. And Esau is a man's man. And Jacob is a stinker mama's boy he is because he hangs around mama and he cooks so Esau goes out hunts brings home the food throws it to Jacob and says you know make me some of that lentil stew or something right 
And yet Jacob, the authentic self, was favored because God had chosen him. But in order to get his daddy's blessing, he had to pretend to be Esau. He couldn't go in as Jacob. He had to put, you know, animal skins on his arms and whatever, so that when daddy felt the animal skins, he said, oh, it's my son Esau. And so when Jacob, I'm sorry, when, when Isaac blesses Jacob, he doesn't bless Jacob. He blesses Esau. So there's no real connection that Jacob has to any blessing or any love because it's not authentic because it's not, you see it? So then when God, so it's no wonder he's wrestling with the angel. God already told him, so follow the story of Jacob. He, he gets a blessing from his dad, but it's not a real blessing because it's not for him. It's for Esau. So then he goes out and has a dream and God says, I'm going to bless you. So then later on in his life, he struggles and he wrestles and he gets taken advantage of over and over and over again, shaving off his authentic self until finally he wrestles with an angel and he, and, and he tells the angel, I won't let you go till you bless me. He, he, he already was blessed. What he was wrestling with was not to be blessed. What he was wrestling with was his own unconscious false self and what he thought he had to put out there in order to receive love and that's the problem when we just let people manipulate us and we just try to be everything to everybody and try to keep everybody happy because we don't want to upset anybody and we want to want them to love us we never feel loved because it's not our authentic self we are wearing the skins of esau with the voice of jacob completely incongruent and the sad thing is is that many people just fall asleep and stay asleep their whole life and when they die their music that god put inside them to sing to the world dies with them Matthew 16:23 He turned and said unto Peter, "Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Why? For thou savorest the things of men, but not the I'm um, I'm sorry, you do not savor those things that be of God, your creator. You savor those things that be of men. And then a few verses later he says this, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You know, obviously I can't mention names, but I, I've had the privilege of working with and knowing some fairly famous people at a counseling level. And the problem, the problem with fame is this. There can be such a high off of the fame that the entire self becomes invested in that. And when all those moments are over, as high as the highs are, the lows are even lower. And the more attention you have, the more money you have, the more influence you have, the more you're at the top of your profession or the top of whatever it is that you're doing, the more pressure you have to stay there. And the higher the highs, I promise you, the lower the lows. But, but we all do it. You don't, you don't have to gain wealth. You can just be pursuing wealth and lose your soul. You can just be pursuing popularity or fame, but lose your soul. 
See, that's the problem. When we make the resurrection totally a past event, totally a future event, and we make it totally about the body, we lock everything into time and space into an event that we cannot participate in, and we lock everything into the physical realm. So people work jobs they hate, do stuff they hate, whatever. And the entire time, all that trying to profit and losing your soul in the process. Jesus isn't talking about the end time judgment. He's talking about a process of domestication where we compromise who we are because we are unconscious and we are asleep. And we lose our authentic self, our authentic voice. We lose our soul. And then all we are is a shell of some conditioned, domesticated slave. I promise you we'll get to some good news in a while, but we have to look at the problem. Religion is especially bad about this. When it tells you that you are evil, when it tells you that you have to suppress your desires... Religion does the exact opposite of connect us to our souls. Seldom does it connect us to life. And almost never does it actually connect us to God. It connects us to a collective consciousness that has made God in its own image. And unfortunately for many of us, religion serves as one of the primary domesticators. When we can no longer honor ours or others' experiences of life or themselves, we participate in forms of slavery. <clears throat> Integrity isn't just telling others the truth. <laughs> and make no mistake, if you don't <laughs> tell others the truth, you don't have integrity. <laughs> But it's not just about telling others the truth. It's more about being authentic and true to your own soul. You can be honest about situations and totally disconnected from your own soul and not be living any kind of an authentic life because you're disconnected from your own desires. The word integrity comes from the word integer, and an integer is something that is whole. It means to be whole and complete. Carl Jung sometimes, uh, Carl Jung said, sometimes you have to choose between being good or being whole. So, the real death, or the real sleep, is the loss of our unique and authentic expression. And to wake up or to resurrect in the now, is to awaken out of this state of unconsciousness, to reconnect to our authentic self and our soul, and burn with desire to give our unique expression away to the world. How do we lose connection? (laughs) By valuing other people's opinions at the sacrifice of our own. This is the big one. You ready for this? Because religion encourages this. Families encourage this. Loving others more than we love ourselves. Loving others more than we love ourselves. Instead of loving others as we love ourselves. Or let me put it this way. Loving others more than we love ourselves. Instead of loving other, instead of loving others while we are in the process of loving ourselves. 
If loving you is killing me, I'm actually violating Jesus' commandment. Sacrificing too much of ourselves to please others creates a bondage and leads us away from loving ourselves to resenting ourselves and resenting the people who through their own dreams and unconsciousness enslave us by making us an extension of their own dream rather than giving us the space to live our own. Can you see that? Daniel said this, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Certainly you can read that as a cherry-picked verse, as people who are buried, their body rots, and then somehow God comes and puts all those particles back together, and boom, and based on whatever you did, some go into life and some go into hell. That's one way to look at it. But you also have to remember that the Hebrew story tells us that God created man in his own image from the dust of the earth. That he made Adam from the dust of the earth and he breathed into him the breath of life. And what happened? Adam became a living soul. So all of us who are in this room who have a body. In other words, not talking about the angels. All of us are in the dust. It's a question of whether or not those of us who sleep in our dust awaken. But once you awaken, you have a choice. You can either move into everlasting life, which is the gift that God is honoring, God is offering. By honoring the experience, honoring the awakening, and honoring who you are. Or you can look at your life as a mess, become so ashamed, and not to mention the shaming voices that are around you, that you sink into shame and contempt. Because make no mistake, when you awake, you have a choice. You have a conscious choice of free will which way you're going to go. You can pay the price and take the, the chance on honest, authentic self-expression, or you can become overwhelmed by the shame and the contempt of where you're at, and you can go back to sleep. And you can't blame anybody for not setting the alarm <laughs> or letting you oversleep. So awakening then is followed by a choice between life that you were destined to live or shame and contempt. Here's the, the, the kind of strange part about it. Ultimately, we can't wake ourselves up. You can't wake yourself up. You can't choose the timing. You can't say, well, I hope it happens tomorrow or I wish it would happen ten years ago. <laughs> when it happens, it happens because it is a gift from God. Only Jesus could impart the life that would cause Lazarus to come forth. It's the only part he did. Everybody else around him did the other parts. Rolled away the stone, all the other stuff. But only Jesus, only Christ inside you can wake you up and impart life. And you don't get to choose when that happens. But once you wake up, you have to adjust. So here's some 
adjustments that you can make. Here's the very first thing. You have to tell yourself the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. (laughs) Because the fact that you've been dreaming is you've been lying to yourself. You cannot disconnect from your authentic self, and we all do. It's a condition that we're all in. So let's don't point the finger or judge or whatever. Certainly let's don't heap shame and contempt. We all lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves at times about our health. We lie to ourselves at times about our um, finances. We lie to ourselves about our relationships, our families. We lie to ourselves about our, uh, 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 a fair and honest estimation of our abilities and our potentials. Right? And the key is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's why in every 12-step program, the first thing you have to do is fess up. (laughs) Right? You have to fess up. You have to admit, this is where I'm at, and you don't soothe or medicate it by telling yourself partial truths or the truth and something else. You have to tell yourself the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. This is an incredibly painful but an incredibly liberating process. And for a lot of people, it often happens in the middle of life. Because when you're younger, your, your, your motivation is to find your place in the world. So you invest yourself in your social self, and that's when you fall asleep. <laughs> and that's when you've built up connections and relationships and careers and everything around you. And then you get into midlife and you realize, whoa, this thing has an expiration date. Like, like you don't think about checking the expiration date when you're young, but you get to middle of life, you like, I have an expiration date, and all of a sudden, your authentic self is like, hey, I have a song to sing, I have a gift to give the world, I don't want to die with my music in me. It's painful but liberating. You have to take risks. You cannot live authentically and please people. All the time. You have to take the risk to live authentically. And this often means that those closest to us, our families, our religious institutions, won't understand because we have disrupted their own dream and we're no longer playing the role that we played in their dream anymore. So our awakening causes disruption to the entire system. Therefore, you have to prioritize living authentically to yourself, over-pleasing others, then let the chips fall where they may. How many times have you made made someone else happy while you were making yourself miserable? Now think about the logic in this. How many times have you made someone else happy while you made yourself miserable? Think about the logic. There's two two people. One of them is going to be happy. So by making them happy and yourself miserable, you just you, you did nothing to change not the equation. You get it? So awakening is honoring yourself to say, I am more than anybody else on the planet. I am responsible for my dream. I am responsible for my voice. I am responsible for my music. And I am responsible for my own happiness. Religion will tell Thank you. And the other person is responsible for their happiness. And we impede people's progress spiritually when we try to protect them from pain. 
So you have to prioritize living authentically to yourself, over-pleasing other people, and then you have to let the chips fall where they may. It's not as hard as it sounds, but it's super scary at first. And there's risk involved. But look, spiritual things aside, the Bible aside, God aside, psychological studies have proven the people who die bitter on their deathbeds are the people who kept everything about their authentic self locked up inside of them. And the people who die well are those who are living a fulfilled life, not because everything went right for them circumstantially, but because they made a decision to live authentically. Because you and I living authentically is the best gift that we can give to other people. You and I living authentically is the best gift that we can give to the world. And that's the resurrection because what happens is if you're not living the life that you uniquely have been called to live and if you're not giving voice to your unique truth, then you're dead. You're living someone else's life. So what gets recovered, what gets saved, and what gets resurrected is you. Now, look at these verses. Let's come back to this and I'll be done. And Jesus said to, said to them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. See, here's the thing we've got to realize. Not only are we, not only have we been domesticated, we have also been domesticators. <laughs> Easy to play the victim and say, oh yeah, I've been domesticated because my mom told me to clean the plate. <laughs> but the truth is, we domesticate other people <laughs> as well. And so I think it's so interesting that Jesus says about Lazarus, where have you laid him? Ask yourself, where have people laid you? And then ask yourself, where have you laid others? Because if you think your own awakening is disruptive, way to tell people around you start awakening. Because <laughs> look what he says here. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is how awakening happens. Because we're stuck in that domestication process, we hear the voice of Christ, we get a surge of life, our authentic self comes alive, and we find ourselves with the same people in the same situation, wrapped in grave clothes, trying to figure out how to get out. Jesus didn't take off the grave clothes. <laughs> Such a powerful story about community. Such a powerful, powerful story about community and about a way to live because here's the other part of an awakening. We give other people the freedom of self-expression. We have to realize, you know, it was the family that wrapped him in his grave clothes, even literally. It was the family that laid him in the tomb. <laughs> and so we have to make a choice 
when people start waking up, we have to let them go. We have to be willing to take off the grave clothes that we have mummified them in through our own expectations. Stop demanding that they're, that they're not just there. People are not just there for your unmet needs. They're not just there to make you happy. They're not extensions of you. We are not extensions of each other. We're all stuck in this human entanglement together. We're all stuck in this dream together. We're all at different stages and process in our own soul's journeys. And so realize it can be a struggle to get your grave clothes off, but it's very, very important that we are able, if you love someone, you can loose them and let them go. There's nothing better than light and life. And we've been called into it. This power, this resurrection is available to us right now. One of the things we've lost in the communion elements is the sense of sacrament. And a sacrament is, I don't have time to explain it. We, we get on the Catholics because we say, oh, they believe it actually becomes the body and blood of the Lord. I don't know any Catholic that is into cannibalism. And when we judge the Catholic faith, it's ignorance. It's, it's called transubstantiation. And in the ancient world, substantia was the invisible, divine, element that inhabits all things the actual molecules don't change but there's an impartation of divine energies that gives to you the body and blood of christ so that you can internalize it so that it becomes part of your system so that you can live it out and what if we got back to that what if we just said let's have faith that, you know, we saw, oh, it's just a symbol. What if we added some mystery to it and some value to it and some faith to it and said, you know what, maybe it's not just a symbol. Maybe there are divine energies that get imparted when we pray and we remember the sacrament and we do as the Lord instituted and reminded us to do. And we celebrate one another and we celebrate each other and we go easy on each other and we quit judging people. Please. People, I believe this with all my heart. People are doing the best they can with the resources that are available to them. And you have no idea the hell that people have had to go through. And sometimes when that authentic self starts to come out, it gets very disruptive. And sometimes we don't do it perfect. Sometimes we wake up and forget to look in the mirror. Yeah, all right. Your jokes went over so much better. 
And so being part of a healthy community of faith is being able to give one another space and one another grace without judgment. And that's part of what the sacrament of Holy Communion is about. So I'm going to pray over the elements and then I'm going to invite you to partake of Holy Communion. Just a note for those of you that could potentially be bothered by this. We used, for the most part, real wine. It wasn't until prohibition that the church started using grape juice. And the ancient church said it was a sin if you didn't take it with wine. But I also understand that there are people who have made a commitment in their heart, like John the Baptist, by the way, so no judgment, to not let alcohol cross their lips. So we have a grape juice tray that's marked over here. If you're a child or you've just made a commitment in your own heart to not drink, and we honor that and we value that, okay? The rest of them have real wine, so I think I'm looking at a few wine bibbers in the house, but I'm not sure. Let's stand up, we'll pray, and then I invite you to come and take Holy Communion. I hope this helped you today, what I had to offer to you. I hope you'll find a blessing. It may have been a little heavy for an Easter message, but I hope it was good food for the soul. Thank you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for every person that's here, the value that they have, the dream that they have inside their heart, the music that they came here to play, the gift, the unique gift, the unique voice that they have, and the unique gift that they came into this world to give. Father, I pray that we will all awaken and find the light of Christ in our lives. And we remember, especially this week, the passion of Jesus that began the night he was betrayed when he took the bread and he broke it and he said, Take eat, for this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink of this cup. (laughs) This is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I ask that the divine energies of Christ would become especially strong and especially present in our communion elements today. And as a result, in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. You can come partake. Again, just a reminder, grape juice, one that's marked over here. But you're welcome to come and partake wherever you want. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day.